This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow. From the land and sea they roam. Drinking wine in the great unknown. Here we are with another episode of the Vigneto podcast on sustainability. I'm here with Kim, is the Senior Vice President of Food Service Sustainability Solutions, among many other projects that he works on. So that is a mouthful as a name, as a title. So I'm going to let Kim explain what do you guys actually do? All right. Well, good morning and good to speak with you. Um, so FSS focuses on sustainability solutions, usually in the space with K-12 schools, universities, uh, quick serve restaurants, fast food chains, and some federal prisons. And what that means in concrete terms is we manufacture equipment here in Georgia that provides solutions in one case for food waste diversion so that instead of it going to a landfill where it would create methane gas which is 20 times more noxious than co2 but most people don't know about it um, you can divert it and repurpose it either as an animal feed or the easier solution is often channeling it as a feedstock into compost so that's one. Those are food waste dehydrators. They reduce the mass on site for large producers of food scraps or food waste by 80 or 90 percent. And it reduces your truck hauls. It reduces your dumpster pulls. It reduces how many dumpsters you may need. So there's some ROI and savings inherent in reducing your waste before you move it. The other product that we do a lot with K-12 schools on, among others, deals with styrofoam, which I grew up with the mindset that styrofoam was bad and non-recyclable. Turns out that is not the case. There's a chemical process by which it can be repurposed back into what it originated as, which is mostly petroleum. And school lunch trays are, are one source where you see a lot of still foam in use. And that's partly because it's one of the least expensive options for schools. Um, but historically, it has been going to a landfill. So with our Styrogenie, which is an on-site foam densifier, you basically cook it down by 95% on-site. So you could take two stacks of trays that are you know, 900 on each side or 1,800 total. They stand about five feet, and you can reduce it to about two inches tall in a 16-inch by 20-inch paver block. Those then don't need to be picked up very often. Every four to six months, you might have a pallet worth. Those get sent back to us. We consolidate until we have a semi-truck full. And then we partner with a group called Nexus Fuels, which Cox Enterprises supported through one of their clean tech initiatives. They then extrude it back to petroleum. So it's a totally closed loop. You're recycling 100%. And if you're a school, after the first two or three years, the unit's paid for itself. And you've eliminated, let's say you had two dumpsters, you eliminate one. And then you have ongoing savings once the upfront investment has been paid off. So usually within two or three years, depending on your waste cost, it's paid for. And now you've just got upside. And the kids are the easiest to train. They like the fact that they're recycling everything with the food waste going in a dehydrator, the styrofoam being recycled back into a new product, and the waste cost going down on both fronts. So those are two specific things that we do in the sustainability space, and we could talk about some things we created during COVID, but that's a little bit off topic today, unless you want to delve in there at some point. No, I do. It's just, you just, you just described so many different processes. I just want to kind of wait one second and just ask you some very kind of banal questions. 
So yeah, if sure. you sell this, what is it? What is it that that they're buying? It's a they're buying. It's so the food if genie, I'm talking it's about like a diaper genie, but it's for food service. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. So the the food the food waste dehydrators we run under two banners. One is compost accelerator. The other is the food steward. Food steward was created for very small kitchens, quick serve restaurants. The other ones range in size from something that may be 45 inches long and 30 inch depth, stand about four feet to something that's four times that big. And so when we're doing universities or prisons, you know, the, the model number relates to the number of pounds per cycle it can process in the drum or the chamber. And so if I have a 1100 unit, then that means I can put 1100 pounds in at one time, process that, and then it kicks out the residual, which has been reduced from 1100 pounds down to around 200 pounds. Uh, if it's a 500 unit, I'm reducing it from 500 pounds in about 16 hours down to 100 pounds. And what comes out is a dry, stable residual that can be kept on site for a while before it needs to be processed further down the chain into compost. So they're buying <clears throat> the piece of equipment from us, but we're helping coach them on an entire holistic process right. that enables them to divert things from a landfill into a beneficial reuse product. Right. Which sounds amazing. And I feel like why wouldn't every single school in the country buy into this? But, you know, it brings to mind who works this. So it's, of course the kids are really into it, but is it a specific person? Is it the person who's cleaning the building? Is it a teacher who's it's responsible varied. for it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's never the kids that are operating it because from an OSHA perspective, you can't have somebody no, operate most not. of the I mean, equipment right. unless they're 18 and up. So the kids, however, are key. If you look on YouTube and I can send you some links there, but there's, you know, the kids like to process, they use what's called a tap and stack. So they'll knock the food residual out when they're done eating, whatever's left. That'll go in one bin. The tray will get stacked neatly in another bin. And that part they're participating in. Then the actual running of the equipment is usually done either by cafeteria staff, if it's in a school, or custodial staff. If it's in a prison, it's often uh, inmates that operate the equipment that are trained and, and they gain some skills in doing that. If you're talking about a quick serve restaurant, typically it's going to be a director or a leader. It's not going to be a, a teenager who's 16 or 17, but none of it's hard to operate. It's touchscreen, pretty intuitive. And so it's, it's kind of up to speed. Whereas when I started in this space, you know, things were a little clunkier and old school. Nowadays, the teenagers would know how to run it better than some of the older folks like me, <laughs> just based on how they spend most of their time on a digital screen. Right. So, so what, what would block, why wouldn't a school buy it? It just sounds like kind of a no brainer. I mean, they recycle everything, right? Well, it depends. So local infrastructure is going to be one part of the equation. So if I'm in an area that doesn't have a conveniently located compost yard mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to get it from A to B and set up a hauler, then that is less easy in some places than simply contacting your local large waste hauler and, you know, where you already have a relationship. So one of it is infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, but that's changed a lot in the last 20 years. So today, you know, in many states, there's legislation that is 
kind of created the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I live in a state in Georgia where there's no mandate to divert food waste the way there is in California or New England states. However, there's sort of a demand pull. The younger generation has different expectations, both of the supply chain that goes into making their food and mm-hmm. what happens with the post-consumer waste. And so there's there are new chains coming into Atlanta that I've seen just in the last year or two um, that, you know, they're already attuned to the younger generation's mindset. So some of it will change because the market wants it. And even if there's no legislation, you know, there's a group in Atlanta called the Food, Food Well Alliance. They're working with different cities to help create local small mom and pop compost operators who then generate a compost that's used to, with local gardens to generate fresh produce that's then sold back to local restaurants. And so you're getting sort of a movement towards this farm to table. And also that happens with classrooms. So even when there's no mandate and sometimes it's tricky making sure the infrastructure is in place, we're working right now with city of Alpharetta. They have a, a farm and they're getting trained to be an official compost site through the U.S. Compost Council, I think. And so they'll be certified and that then makes it easier for restaurants to go, okay, yeah, we'd like to do that. So it's a process and not every place immediately has the outlet for the residual. In this case, we call dried food waste DFW, high in nutrients, high in nitrogen, but it still needs to be blended with carbon sources to make a finished compost. And so getting that infrastructure in place is often step one and that can take a couple of years. On the styrofoam, there's less of an obstacle because there, when you densify something by 95%, you know, you can ship it a long ways and still be more efficient and still have a lower carbon footprint than landfilling it. And so that one, there's less of an obstacle there. It's just about people being aware that you can do it. There are in some places styrofoam bands, and that's, again, based on sort of an old belief that it can't be recycled. So rather than create the infrastructure in some places, they just banned it. The challenge there is a lot of schools, you know, don't have the budget to pay twice as much for school lunch trays. If they were doing disposable with styrofoam and it was going to a landfill and now they switch to some kind of compostable product, they're paying two or three times as much. And again, if the infrastructure isn't there for the compostable product, it may still be going to the landfill. So, a lot of complexity, you know, in the early going in a given city or area, uh, but things that are solvable. And so it's just trying to get infrastructure in place, trying to educate people on what can be recycled under what circumstances. And none of that happens quickly, but over the last 20 years, we've seen a tectonic shift. You've got eight or nine states out there with food waste mandates. You've got many that have what? municipalities. Hmm. Which are the states that have food waste mandates? Um, well, California is probably the largest state that right. has one that's been phased in over six or seven years. Current mm-hmm. status is that as of January 1st, 2022, if you create more than one ton of food waste a week, which most commercial places would, then you have to have a diversion plan in place and it's left to the municipalities to enforce and penalize if you don't, but the Mm -hmm. state's going to be penalizing the municipality. So there's an incentive structure, (laughs) you know, they've they've used carrots and sticks and the sticks are about to take effect there. 
Um, you know, so Californians are acutely aware of this. And in their case, it's also going down also to residential levels. You got Connecticut, Delaware, New York, Massachusetts. Uh, Maryland is a new one that has, they're phasing it in starting in 2022. If you have two tons a week, you have to do something. And I think in their case, by 2024, it'll go down to one ton a week. Uh, Maine and Vermont have legislation. And then you've got some places where you might think the state has something like uh, Washington and Oregon, but in fact, it's not a statewide thing, but Portland and Seattle have their own mandates. You've got Austin, Texas on its own in Texas, Boulder, Colorado, Hennepin, Minnesota. So there are a lot of places doing that. And then Uh like in my backyard, we don't have that sort of thing, but we have groups creating the infrastructure. And so you've got sort of grassroots level, both from the consumer side, the younger generation wanting certain things and, and being much more dialed into where things come from and where they go than our generation might have been at their age. And you've got the infrastructure getting built. A lot of times it starts with a university and, you know, there's the, the science and, you know, University of Georgia has a big compost facility, which I know five, six years ago, they hadn't been diverting their food waste from their five dining halls. And while they didn't purchase anything <laughs> from us, I did right. some training and we did some on-site piloting and they, they did come up with a better solution from a carbon perspective and a cost perspective. So, you know, it's a process for us. Obviously, we're in the business of selling equipment, but in a greater context where we're hoping that whether we do or don't sell that given unit, that we still educate and lead people to better decisions. Well, so what do you see as like a game changer in terms of making people focus on the sustainability and of course, recycling of products like the ones that you guys deal with. Do you think it's a financial incentive? Do you think it's a mindset change? What do you, what do you see as kind of a combination? So, so the mindset change is is happening with millennials, Gen Z, Gen Y, that, that part is already occurring. And as those folks move into decision maker roles, then they have the ability to influence it based on their own personal preferences. You also have, EPA has an inverted pyramid that talks about, you know, food waste and food loss. So they also offer some grants. So we have one school in Florida that they think they're getting funding for their first dehydrator as a proof of concept. They might not get funding for the ones they want to get, which may be 20 or 30 units for their school district. But once they prove the concept, then they can look at the ROI and figure out, okay, we want to do this. So there, there are incentives like that from the EPA Um, There are different kinds of grants besides EPA that fund things that would lead to diversion of food waste. That's often how states that eventually have mandates start. They start with the carrots and try to get early adopters. Legislation Mm -hmm. clearly plays a role, but maybe one of the big game changers is simply the fact that landfill permitting has become very difficult. You know, 50, 60 years ago, you could open a new landfill in a rural community. Their tax base would benefit and on the surface, everybody was happy. Today, trying to get a new landfill open is virtually impossible. So the existing ones are filling up. So Waste Management and Republic and some of the big players, they know there's a limited timeline to how long they can keep putting stuff in their own landfill. So they're starting to play a role, too, in diversion because it's better for them if they can keep a landfill open for 20 more years than if they can only keep it open for 10 more years. So 
all of those things are coming to a head, you know, kind of at the same time. And it's, it's not any one thing, but I think it's a combination of the mindset shift, incentives, mandates, and just the limited space available with sort of a NIMBY mentality. Nobody wants a new landfill in their backyard. Right. And so the way to, you know, they just aren't getting permitted. And so there have to be other solutions to simply eliminate the amount of waste that has historically gone into U.S. landfills. Hmm. So you've been in this space for a long time. How has it changed? Do you see more people in this space? Do you see people looking at it from different aspects? I mean, I'm in kind of a different part of the business and a lot of people in my part of the business don't talk about the landfills and waste as much as we should in the restaurant industry or, you know, food products don't necessarily talk about it as much. Some of it's a little bit redundant with things I already said, but Besides the mindset and the legislation, um, I, I think there's just a, all major corporations, which this wasn't the case 30 years ago today, every major corporation would have a chief sustainability officer or a director in charge of sustainability. And oftentimes they're getting better at now integrating that person's role with operations. So in the early days, it seemed a bit more like greenwashing in some cases. Okay, we have to have this. We're going to have this, but the person had no authority to make Got decisions, right. to make yep. purchases. Today, while it hasn't completely changed, today often it's one person who is wearing both hats. And so it may be an operations person also tasked with sustainability mm-hmm. or another mix you sometimes see is sustainability and health. <laughs> and, and that's in school nutrition so right. you're starting to see maybe more cross, you know, hybrid positions where they have more decision-making authority where it's not just, okay, I've got somebody who was educated at the university in what is sustainability and what we should be doing with mm-hmm. somebody who was educated in ops and knows, okay, how things really work today. How, how much change could we stomach how quickly? And so mm-hmm. that, that's a pretty substantial change. And with smaller companies, you know, there are more incentives to try to participate. They may not have the dollars to make huge investments, but for them, sometimes it's just being able to play up the marketing side to the next generation that appreciates it. So they may not have a nice ROI, but if they look at it partly as a marketing spend and say, hey, this is our target market. And if we're trying to get the 20, 30 somethings, they want to know where their food came from. They want it to be sustainably sourced. They want to know that we're doing the right thing on the back of house when it comes to the waste at the end of the day. Have you seen, do you work with, I mean, apart from you work with fast food restaurants, do you work with any high-end restaurants or have you had those kind of discussions with other types of restaurants? We've done, we've done some, I wouldn't say high-end, I'd say fast casual. Um, I've done some stuff over the years with Ted's Montana Grill, and, and they're certainly a, a pioneer, both in terms of, the, you know, using grass-fed buffalo. They also offer beef, but you know, buffalo is their special thing. I, I can remember 10 years ago, you know, when they went away from plastic straws. Now I've seen, you know, University of Georgia follow suit. And so some of them, they play a leadership role. They implement some technology, and because they have the platform and they're well-known in the public, they influence other decisions that will follow along. But I haven't, you know, we're not focused on sort of luxury high end. 
in in our market, uh, but that's not to say we wouldn't welcome doing business there. No, of course. But what I mean is, our space. but I guess my question is more: Have you seen an interest in all of these, in all of this, also across the restaurant chain, not just in the in the sort I think of you know fast I think it's casual? Coming. You think it's coming? Yeah, I think it's coming, and I think there it's probably a result more of legislation. I mean, with some of the smaller, newer chains, it's part of kind of their commitment and their mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some of the larger, you know, historic chains, it's it's coming in states where, okay, they have a national footprint. They're obviously in California and New England and the Pacific Northwest. They have to have solutions. And so once they've implemented it in a place they have to, then they start looking at, okay, does this make sense? You know, can we, can we figure this out in places where we may not have to, but since they're used to uniform ways of operating, it's easier for them to then back it into a place where they didn't need to, to start with. Right. So just a couple more questions, because this is just so fascinating. I mean, you know, so much about this space. How did you get into sustainability and waste management, well, waste management and all of this? Has it been something you've <laughs> been following back- for a long time? It's funny, I I was trying to figure out sort of a, a common thread if we went back and in, into my history. And so long ago, when I had been in Germany on a Fulbright, I ended up coming back and working there at the American Chamber of Commerce and spent three years in Germany. And Germany, let's say they're 20 or 30 years ahead of us. They kept doing after the 70s what we had started in the 70s and then abandoned in many cases with recycling, and they did it across the board. Um, When I came back to the U.S., I had the chance to run a potting soils company for a German, and, you know, they had plants in 16 countries. I came back to run the U.S. and North America, and that got me into soils, and then one component part in soils was something that, you know, some argue is not sustainable. That's sphagnum peat moss. Depends how you harvest it. There's a, you know, there's a big debate about that, but that got me thinking over the years as I was playing in the dirt and selling products from Sam's American choice potting soil nationally to Pike's premium here locally in Atlanta. And I gradually started looking at feedstocks. So over time I came to discover that rather than bringing something from thousands of miles away, that may be a good product you know, make more sense if you could source locally. And so there's a value inherent in food waste. And as I evolved through strict sort of old school grower mixes to composts where you use local materials that have nutrient value, that kind of opened my eyes to the potential for what lots of people could do if they had the ability to do it. And the key is a lot of places don't want to have a bunch of bins out back with raw food waste sitting there for two or three days. Mm-hmm. A dehydrator allows you to eliminate the space constraint because you're, you're on a daily basis, you're reducing the mass by 80 or 90%, and you're creating something that won't attract the, the fruit flies and the things that you usually see when you open up one of those green bins mm-hmm. because it's stable and it's been cooked down. Now, the microorganisms survive the heat process. The minute you do add water and you put it into a windrow with a carbon source like wood chips, the microorganisms kick back in and your pile could be at a temperature of 140 or 150 degrees in two or three days. But you had to make that simple. And so in the U.S. where I knew 
mandates were going to be a long time coming, it seemed like the, the faster way to get to certain goals on sustainability and diversion and stewardship would be to make it easier for those who generate the most waste. So dehydrators were the means to that end, and I've been in that space for eight or nine years. Five years ago, I found a, a partner where we could make the equipment here in the U.S., and you know we've been doing that since then. I think a lot of times you've got to make it easier to do the right thing, and equipment is the, the thing that can empower folks to come to the decisions that otherwise it's considered too messy, too time-consuming, too space-consuming for them to fool with. By making it easy, suddenly you get buy-in from entities and individuals who might not otherwise. So are you optimistic about where we're going, We, meaning in the United States, in terms of sustainability and food waste and circular economy and reusing things and all of that? Are you optimistic that we'll yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, it doesn't mindset. come as fast. It doesn't come as fast as I'd like to see it. But I think that the overall trends are favorable. So while I might not be satisfied that we're doing it as quickly as we could, I don't think it's going to reverse course. I think, you know, we've reached a certain tipping point and most people understand why we need to be doing it and are trying to figure out the how they can best do it within their organization. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say I'm optimistic. It's just you know, sometimes it's frustrating because it takes longer to get where it seems like we should be going. Well, I want to thank you for this super duper interesting conversation. And I'm going to go out and create my own compost now. I am one of those people <laughs> who don't have their home compost. My neighbor has one and showed it to me and she opened it up and all those flies came out. And, you know, then I thought, hmm, am I going to do this too? <laughs> that so doesn't I, look appealing, right? It doesn't look appealing. It looks, yeah. No, but I, I know, but I, I'm also a, a budding gardener, so I know that I will, uh, it would be smart for me to, to do that and uh, use our Fantastic. food waste here. So anyway, well, I, I digress. You me. Thank you so much <laughs> for talking to me about this. So um, do you, glad do you to have be a here. website? Thanks again. Do you have a website? What's the website for your company? Yeah, it's, it's www.f as in Frank, s as in Sam, dash, sustainability.com so fs-sustainability.com and that'll take Perfect. you to the equipment we've talked about some of the links to youtube videos and other things this is so great thank you so much kim all right thank you have a great day thank you for listening to the vignetta podcast that was a conversation with kim egger of food service sustainability solutions next week i will be speaking with kathleen wilcox who's a freelance journalist for many wine publications, among other outlets. We'll be talking about sustainability in the industry, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. You can find the Vigneto podcast on Fridays, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. This is Vigneto, a podcast. From the sun and soil they grow. From the land and sea they roll